chapter 1. We're now at the passage I anticipated preaching on Christmas Eve. Jesus arriving on the scene as the long-awaited Messiah. Seems like it would have been appropriate, but we're going to get through this Advent series even if it trails a little behind Advent. Um, What better way to close out 2023 than with a riveting story, a pivotal moment in the great story of the Bible, the great history of redemption, when our Savior finally steps onto the scene to begin his ministry to save his people, to save you and me from our sins. I think that's a word that I need, and I'm guessing you need too on this New Year's Eve. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is from John 1. I'll pick up a few verses from the prologue and then continue with verse 19 and following. This is God's word. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He, John, said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel." And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, this ends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us, make us holy by the truth. And your word, this word that we've read this morning, it is truth. Show us Jesus and his grace for us in this passage. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, change us and make us believe and love and rest in the gospel today. In the name of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, use your imagination with me for a moment. Imagine you're in the land of Israel, maybe you've been to the land of Israel, and you're on the banks of the Jordan River. Try to take in the scene. It's not a very impressive river. In some parts, it's only a trickling stream, 
kind of like all of our streams in Virginia. That's what Gary tells me anyway. If you recall, when we looked at the story of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, he was indignant that Elisha would send him of all places to the Jordan River, this mighty commander of Syria going to this backwater in Israel. There were far better rivers in Syria, he said. But it was no accident that Naaman found his redemption uh, in that river because it was all pointing uh, to what we're going to see unfold today in John chapter 1. So often we look to the cross, like the cross that's right here behind the pulpit every Sunday when we worship, and we think of the cross as the point of deliverance from sin. And of course it is, uh, but this meager river Jordan is as much a part of your redemption as the cross itself. This theme of the Lamb of God that we've been exploring, uh, it was never something unexpected in God's plan. We've seen it, right? We see the lamb for a man, that was Isaac, the binding of Isaac, the ram caught in the thicket that was a substitute for his sacrifice, uh, the lamb for a family at Passover, the lamb for a nation on the Day of Atonement, and now we are at the lamb for the world, the, really the fulfillment uh, of this theme. But it was never something unexpected in God's plan. Um, when I was spending a lot of time ministering in Cuba, I learned a phrase there. Uh, I learned a lot about contingency plans. They always said in Cuba, uh, you don't need a plan, un plan A y un plan B, a plan A and a plan B. You need plans A, B, C, D, X, Y, and Z because Cuba is complicated, lots of contingencies. You have to have a plan for everything. But in God's plan, uh, sending his son as the lamb who would redeem us from our sins was always plan A. So much so that in Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is called the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. So we're here now, and this Lamb theme is finally breaking onto the scene with Jesus beginning his ministry at the Jordan. So as we unpack this, I want to show you three things about Jesus, the Lamb of God. Uh, first, we'll see that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is God. Second, we'll see that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is man. And finally, uh, we'll tie that together and see why it's so important that he be both God and man. So first, the Lamb of God is God. Uh, something we see in John 1, and we didn't read all of John 1, but if you're familiar with the prologue, we see uh, that Jesus is the creator. The Lamb is the creator himself. I wanted to read a few portions from the prologue uh, to bring that into the sermon this morning. Uh, there's a lot we could study through the, all of these verses that we've read, and we won't touch on everything, but I want you to see what they say about Jesus, our Creator. Uh, the Word, in the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him. So who is this Word who is God, by whom all things are created? Who is John the Apostle talking about? Well, he's talking about the true light we read just a moment ago, the true light coming into the world. It was this light that John the Baptist was sent to announce, to announce the arrival of this light. Let me read verses 6 to 8 again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, not the apostle, but the baptizer. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then in verse 15, of course, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So the creator of all things, the light of light, the coming light 
who John the Baptist was sent to bear witness about. This is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is the Creator. The Lamb of God is God. And as the prologue closes, the Apostle John goes on to tell us about John the Baptist's ministry. And then we read this interesting conversation uh, between John the Baptist and the Jewish leaders who were sent from Jerusalem. John is being interrogated, essentially, and he handles himself with distinction. He's direct and he's clear. Uh, somebody told me recently that uh, their, their kid wanted to come to the children's sermon uh, to hear the imposter. And they thought, what? And it was actually the pastor. Uh, and then the next week, uh, it was a guest preacher, and there was an imposter uh, in the pulpit. But John is no imposter. He knows who he is. And he is clear with these people who are interrogating him about who he is. He says he's the one who's called by God to bear witness that God himself is coming. Listen to what he says. This is what he says about the creator who's coming, this lamb of God who is God and who will very soon arrive on the scene. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. We read that moments ago in Isaiah 40. Uh, some have called what we're reading here, these words of John the Baptist, uh, the gospel according to John the Baptist here in the gospel of John. He says, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's recognizing that this Messiah to come is God. He says, I am not the Christ. Among you stands one you do not even know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then in the prophet Isaiah, uh, which we've read this morning, uh, chapter 40, there's this shift from judgment that's coming against Israel for their disobedience, and there's this shift to a tone of comfort. Isaiah 40 opens this new theme of comfort. Sometimes it's called the book of comfort from that point on. And John the Baptist identifies himself with the herald of Isaiah 40. He is the one called to bear witness of this comfort. Isaiah 40, verse 1 and following, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. If you know a little bit more about John the Baptist's ministry, uh, his words weren't always uh, comforting, not to the Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. But he's offering this baptism of repentance. It's a different baptism than Christian baptism. Uh, he is still a prophet of the old covenant. He's calling God's people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the Lamb of God is about to break onto this scene. And then we read it. The long-awaited promised one has arrived. John 1.29. This is what we read. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. Jesus is approaching John on the banks of the Jordan River, and John declares, this is it. He's finally here. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Everything we've read about the Lamb of God theme, it's coming to fruition here at the Jordan River. Uh, the Lamb for a man, Isaac, uh, bound on the altar of Moriah. The Lamb for a family at the first Passover. Uh, the blood covering the doorposts. The sacrificial goats slaughtered and then sent away into the wilderness on the Day of Atonement. All of these symbols uh, pointing to a substitute are connecting now with this man who is standing on the banks of the Jordan. He's here. The reality that was prefigured in these things has arrived because the creator of the universe, the word who was with God and who was God, has now come into the world. The light of men, the blessed Lamb of God, who is God, is drawing near now on the banks of the Jordan. So that's the first point. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is God. John recognized it, and we need to recognize that. But there's a second truth about the Lamb of God that I want you to see. The Lamb of God is God, but now we see that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is man, and he puts himself on the side of sinful men and women like us to save us. It's important to notice that the Lamb uh, wasn't exactly what the Jews had in mind as they waited their, awaited the Messiah. Jesus isn't exactly uh, what they thought they were going to get. He doesn't appear on the scene as this divine warrior as they anticipated. Uh, they were looking for a mighty warrior, someone who could be their champion to liberate them from human oppression, from political subjugation. Uh, he came to free them from something much more serious, something more serious than they could have imagined. He came to free us from sin and death, uh, which is our due for breaking God's covenant. And before we're through, we're going to look at that. But first, we have to see that he was God, and he was also man. Jesus came as a real, unassuming man who is fully God, yet also fully man. We're going to see later as we end this series that the Lamb of God won't always look like a simple, humble, unassuming man. Not as he sits enthroned. He'll look like the victorious warrior lamb, which is this contradiction in terms, but it's how Revelation describes the lamb. More on that when we get there. But for now, we see Jesus appearing in weakness to gain the victory. He appears in weakness. Jesus appears as the ram caught by the thorns in the thicket of this world. He's subject to the same sufferings as you and me. Uh, he appears as the Passover lamb who, whose own death makes death stay away from all who are trusting in him. He appears as the scapegoat sent outside the camp carrying our sins upon himself. That's how the lamb conquers. That's how Jesus conquers for us, through weakness, suffering, and death. So why was he baptized? Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Well, Jesus, the Lamb of God who was God, with no sin at all, he didn't have to go through this baptism of repentance that John was preaching. Uh, so why was he baptized? John asked the same question. In Matthew 3.14, this other account of Jesus' baptism, uh, we read this. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then John the Baptist consented. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is identifying himself with sinners by undergoing this baptism of repentance. Uh, some would say that this even points to his consecration as a priest. And that would be part and parcel with him identifying himself and connecting his ministry to be on behalf of sinners. Uh, the Lamb of God is a sinless man, but he's still a man. And he is a man who is for you. He's the only perfect human being who never sinned, but by going through this baptism, he identifies himself with sinners like us. So let me ask you at this point, 
Do you recognize your need for a Savior who comes alongside you? A Savior who walks with you, who counts himself among sinners like you. Someone who would take up your cause and carry your sins on himself. Often we think we can obey ourselves into God's good favor. But what we need, and this theme has showed us over and over again, what we need is a substitute. This Lamb of God theme has made it clear that we can't do it ourselves. We need something to stand in for us, someone to stand in our place. We think we can repay our debt, but we need someone to pay the ransom for us. We need someone like us in every way, yet without sin, to do what we can't do and to pay what we could never repay. But there's more to it than that. Let's suppose that somehow, I don't know how you could do it, but let's suppose you could manage personally, maybe through your best year of keeping your resolutions in 2024, and you could somehow repay that debt of sin. Somehow you won't drop off on week six of all your resolutions to be perfect, and you're perfect all year. And somehow you're able to get back to zero. You're able to zero out the debt that you owe God for your sins. Even if somehow you could pay back the debt, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough because, you know, ask anyone who knows math, it's not my forte, uh, but you don't just need to scrape your way back to zero because that math can't save. That isn't what's required to save. Perfection, 100%, that's what's required. You don't just need your debt erased, you need to be 100% perfect, and you'll never do it. I'll never do it. It'll never happen. That's why we need a representative, a substitute, someone that can stand in for us. And that's what Jesus did when he was baptized. I said we often look to the cross, right? And yes, we should. But remember, as Jesus goes into that water, he goes in and he says, I am for you. And everything I do from this point on is going to be for you. And this is going to accomplish the redemption of my people. This is what we needed It's important to see this because this is why Jesus didn't just appear on the scene and become the sacrifice immediately. Why wasn't he born a 30-something-year-old man and and then he could go straight to the cross? Why Why was he born a baby? Why have we been celebrating that this season? Well, he had to be born and live and grow up, and only then, after living the perfect life, the perfect life that none of us can ever live, then he could be the sacrifice in our place, because we need not just his sacrifice, we need his righteousness too. We need his perfection given to us. That won't just bring us back to zero, that brings us to 100% in him. So Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. Why is that such good news? This is one final point I want you to see and understand from this passage. And it's this, the Lamb of God, as God and man, is the covenant keeper. He is the covenant keeper. Here we're going to tie this together. Why is it important that the Lamb of God is both God and man? He's able to be your covenant keeper. I think I've said this before, but covenant is one of those words, having done this for some time, uh, that when a preacher says covenant, half of you lean forward on the edge of your seats and half of you shut down like a robot who's just been unplugged, right? It's like too much right now in the morning. So let me come at this from another angle. Let me come at this from another angle. What do wild animals have anything to do with anything? Wild animals. I hope you're asking, yeah, what do wild animals have to do with anything? Well, to tie this together, what happens right after Jesus' baptism sheds light on this point. Right after his baptism, this baptism of repentance that sinless Jesus didn't need to go through, but he underwent to be on our side 
put himself on the side of sinners. Jesus is then sent by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you remember that story? He's sent into the wilderness to be tempted. Mark uh, adds a detail to this account that I think is very fascinating and very helpful. Hear what Mark says. It's probably the best window into this idea of Jesus as our covenant keeper. Mark 1.13 says, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. He was with the wild animals. That seems like an odd detail. Why, do, why, do, why, does that in, why is that included? Well, you may not know it, but he was with the wild animals is actually incredibly good news for us. Uh, when we read of the covenant that God had made with Israel, um, covenant is simply an agreement between two parties. So this agreement that God has made with Israel, this covenant, it's a gracious agreement, yet with one works aspect related to it. Sinners can never be saved by works. Sinners are only always saved by grace. Eternal salvation is always and only by grace. Same in the Old Testament, same in the New Testament. But as it pertained to Israel remaining in the promised land, their, their stay, their tenure in the promised land, there's a work aspect in this otherwise gracious covenant. Not for salvation, but for staying in the land. This is where the wild animals come in. Uh, we read about the curses that would come on Israel for their rebellion if they disobeyed and they broke the covenant. And wild animals are a part of that curse. Wild animals are a picture of that curse, a picture of their downfall and their exile. So I won't read all of these blessings and cursings from, from Leviticus chapter 26, but I will highlight a couple of them. Here first some of the blessings. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. That gives you a picture of the blessings, the peace. No wild animals to disturb you while you're in the land as long as you remain faithful. But the curses for disobedience follow. When we read uh, in Leviticus 26, 21 and 22, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. So it's this picture, right? Wild animals attacking towns and villages, taking their lives and their livelihood. Certainly a picture of this hardship and judgment that would come against covenant breakers should Israel break the covenant. So again, you might be asking, okay, all right, but what does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? Well, you need to see how this relates to you and why it matters that the Lamb of God is God and the Lamb of God is man and why he went through the waters of Jordan and into the desert for you. Uh, the blessings and the curses in this covenant with Israel are pictures of that covenant that we all share in. On the one hand, the blessings on Israel are a picture of that covenant of grace that we all enjoy by faith alone in Christ. But the works aspect and these wild animals and all the other uh, terrible things that would happen if they broke the covenant, that's a picture of the final judgment that's coming for anyone who doesn't turn to Jesus. The covenant that we've all broken as sinners. What we deserve outside of ourselves or outside of Christ in and of ourselves. We deserve those curses. It's a picture of the judgment. It's a picture of what awaits us if Jesus doesn't come on our behalf to save us. But there's comfort for Israel, right? Comfort my people. Even though this broken covenant has happened, there's comfort for Israel and there's comfort for us. That's what John the Baptist has come to announce 
And he's this prophesied herald of comfort saying, turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who makes all of this right. He's the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. He's the Holy One of Israel, the faithful covenant-keeping Son, the Lamb of God who was in the beginning with God and who was God. He's the one who has gone through the waters of repentance, even though he didn't need to repent for us. And then he's the Lamb of God who went for 40 days into the wilderness and did what Israel couldn't do for 40 years in the wilderness. He kept free from sin and perfectly obeyed God. So the Lamb of God was with the wild animals, but they didn't touch him. They didn't harm him because he's perfect, and he's the Son of God in whom God is well pleased. All of that is true for us because of what Jesus has done for us. He was faithful to God in every single detail for all of the details in which we failed. He was faithful on our behalf so that we can live safely in paradise forever with God with no threat of wild animals. That's why it was such good news when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we see Jesus go down into the water for us. He's taking up our cause. And now he has faithfully obeyed the covenant on our behalf. He's done everything required to fulfill all righteousness for you. That's good news for us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful tapestry of good news for sinners like us, woven through your word, held out to us in this theme of the Lamb of God. May we always behold the Lamb, like John said, who takes away the sin of the world. When we see how far we fall short, may we be encouraged that the Lamb of God, who is God, is also the Lamb of God, who is man. God on our side, and man like us, all to save us from the wild animals of curses and death for our covenant breaking. He is our covenant keeper, and we stand amazed at the grace we found in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.